0: Hello everyone, it's June 12th, 2018. This week, in case you heard wrong, the ISS is not being sold, at least not anytime soon, and in case you didn't hear correctly, SpaceX is going to be making some rather large additions to Kennedy Space Center, so stick around and hear the rest, and lift off. And we have the tower. Welcome to episode one sixty two of the Orbital Mechanics podcast. I'm David, and I'm Ben. Good morning, David. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm all right. So, do you want to talk about methane? Since we're not going to cover it in any other part of the show, except for maybe this one, uh, methane on Mars, I should say.
1: Oh yeah, the the big announcement.
0: Yeah, the big announcement, which wasn't aliens. Uh, not surprised.
1: Yeah. Never is. Well, uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised that it didn't have more to do with water. Like, my dad texted me right before the announcement. He's like, "What? What's NASA going to announce?" As if like I would know. And I'm like, oh, it's pr- it's probably like another incremental evidence of water, you know, modern-day water on Mars, and like we do this. But yeah, so there's methane production on Mars right now that's happening mm-hmm. now. Apparently it's seasonal, right? So it seems to be stronger during the summer months. At least that's what I've read. Yeah, for I mean, it depends on how you define summer because... You know, the northern hemisphere is going to be in summer while the southern hemisphere is in winter. So I don't know exactly how they define summer months for a planet.
0: I thought it was methane specifically from the region. I don't know, And I don't know if that's something that they can determine that is currently in okay. summer. Okay,
1: okay, okay. So yeah, so um, Sam points out that, you know, the landers are in the southern hemisphere mostly so they're probably talking about southern summer even though most of the most of the things we've landed on mars are pretty close to the equator i mean they they move up and down but nothing's like super far south but okay um I, i was also thinking maybe they were talking about oh i was gonna say uh paramars but it's actually perihelion right so Mars has got a slightly more eccentric orbit than Earth does I believe let's see
0: and it is inclined a little bit further right it's like twenty four, twenty five 25 degrees tilted on its axis axis I
1: thought I thought it was straighter up and down than Earth is but um, while well, you look that up <laughs> Earth's eccentricity is about 0.01 whereas Mars is 0.09 which means that you know Mars will have a hotter perihelion than than Earth does Earth Really doesn't experience a heating at, at perihelion very much, and Mars
0: is twenty. Its axial tilt is twenty five point one nine to its orbital plane. Oh, wow. So that is more, right?
1: Because Earth is twenty three, something like that. Yeah, somewhere in there. Cool. I didn't realize that that Mars had more extreme seasons that's pretty cool
0: so yeah methane on mars um but it could just be the result of geology
1: it's almost certainly a result of geology yeah
0: yeah yeah and that is a far more likely explanation i mean i don't know what else it could be i mean like other than microbial life but that's yeah
1: microbial life is the exciting thing but um Mm -hmm. it's also i mean there are plenty of ways to do methane sequestration i mean especially if it's more abundant in summer, you know, that sounds like ice melting and, re- and releasing trapped methane.
0: My other guess is maybe it's just subterranean cows, <laughs> Martian cows, right? I
1: can't believe those words were said on this podcast.
0: Well, I think I guess it would be sub-Martian, because you can't say subterranean, so what do you call- Sub-Aryan? Sub-Aryan, there you go. I bet that's it. Sub-Aryan Martian cows, which I guess is redundant. You don't have to say the Martian part. Why are we talking about this?
1: <laughs> Sam, Sam's like, this is, this is fantastic, you guys. Can... No, <laughs> all of this is going to get cut out.
0: Anyway, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Let's let's uh, talk some sense here. All right. So, who do we have for winners this week?
1: All right. So this week our winners are Ben Hallert, Ming Lord, Cranston, Mike Carper, Niraj Sharma. That's a new name, and Chris bush which i think is also a new name this week in spaceflight history is the 14th of june 1991 it was the landing of sts-40 so the clue was something about space flown jelly we'll talk about the clue in a second but first let's talk about some of the interesting things that happened on this mission so first this was the first spaceflight in history to fly with three women on board Um, and those women were tammy jernigan uh, who is a physicist uh, Rhea seddon who's a physician and she was actually part of the first nasa astronaut class to include women. So there were six women selected and she was one of them. Um, And then uh, Millie Hughes-Fulford, who is a molecular biologist- the physician and the molecular biologist and all these biology-focused people that were on this mission are really important, and we'll get to that in a sec. But before they could get off the ground, STS-40 was actually delayed quite a while for what I thought was an interesting reason. They were worried about some transducers in the locks and liquid helium tanks breaking off and getting ingested in the engine <laughs> Uh, and so they actually delayed the launch so that they could go and replace all these transducers. So a, a transducer is, is basically a, a pressure sensor, right? It, it just tells you how much fuel you have left. And so these transducers um, actually protrude into the propellant tanks. And there are also a couple of them that protrude into the propellant lines to, to check pressure. And so the year before STS-40 had flown, they had found a, a leaky transducer. And so of course they you know, just pulled it out and sent it back to the to the manufacturer, and just before STS forty was getting ready to fly, the vendor came back and said, "Hey, uh, so we did some testing on this transducer you guys gave us. It actually failed some of our tests, and it might break off inside the tank, which is really kind of terrifying." So they delayed they delayed the launch so they could basically replace. Every transducer. I don't think they replaced all of them, but they replaced most of them. I thought that was a, an interesting reason to to delay launch. Um. So yeah, all these life science people's. Um. This was actually the fifth space lab mission. Space lab was basically an ISS module shoved inside a shuttle cargo bay. Right. I mean, it's it's this big ISS looking module. Um. That just provides some extra space for shuttle missions. So this was the fifth space lab mission, and it was called space lab life sciences one. So SLS one, um, it was the only SLS mission, uh, or the only S- space lab life sciences mission. But, uh, Ben Hallard also beat me to a really good joke when he <laughs> guessed via email and he said, yeah, this is the one and only flight of SLS maybe ever. And I, yeah, I was gonna make that joke, but he beat me to it. <laughs> So on board they had a number of test subjects. Uh, primarily there were humans, because we happened to fly them most often. There were also 30 rodents, and here's where the clue comes in. There were thousands of tiny jellyfish. They actually sent up polyps and they metamorphosed into jellyfish in space. It's very cool. Um I think only one experiment was run on the jellyfish, and then a bunch more were run on the rodents, and then even more were run on the humans. But as the name suggests Uh, This was all about life sciences. And so they basically had a a huge litany of of body systems that they wanted to test. And I wrote them down in the hope that it would be interesting. And I think I'm just going to read off basically every system in the human body. But they studied uh, cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary systems. Uh, the renal and endocrine systems, uh, blood plasma, the immune system, the musculoskeletal system, as well as the neurovestibular system. And they did this obviously in, in three different organisms. Um, they also had a bunch of other science uh, experiments on board, but I couldn't find any super interesting information to convey. But there you go. That's STS-40. And of course, the uh, this week is the landing of STS-40, not the launch. And I picked the landing because it landed in Edwards Air Force Base or at Edwards Air Force Base where I used to live. So, you know, this this happened while I was there. Like I I probably heard this sonic boom as it came back through the atmosphere, even if I didn't pay much attention to it. So uh, that's a personal choice for me to (laughs) To choose which end of the mission to do.
0: So, yeah, thousands of tiny jellyfish in space. You see, and this is one that I didn't know about. Like, I didn't know anything about this experiment, which is why I was confused last week when you gave the clue. I'm sure somewhere there's a website that catalogs all the various animals that have been taken into space. (laughs) I wonder how many there have been. Because, you know, you think about cats. Well, not cats. uh, Dogs, monkeys, uh, rats, just mice and rodents in general. But just how many different fish, bugs, all the weird things that you don't think about. That have been in space
1: sam beat me to it yep the french sent uh cats to space
0: oh wow See, um
1: i think the first one was named alex
0: i didn't even know about that black really? and white kitty yeah that would be such a cool you know okay if you or i like started like a go fund me and this was the idea to put a cat into space like no. we would have them no i mean you would get the money in like a day i have no doubt funding that would, would be no problem that's just waiting to happen that's gonna okay
1: happen. All right. So how about this? Maybe once New Glenn is up and running, we can uh, take a new shepherd uh, to orbit. It can be you, me, and then my cat, Olivander, and we can spend a couple days in space teaching, uh, teaching the cat to do uh, hardcore space parkour. Yeah. Hardcore space parkour. That's a very fun phrase to say. It's not as fun to read, but saying it is really good. Hardcore space parkour.
0: All right, so um, so what is our clue for next week?
1: All right, so I got an audio clue. Next week in two thousand, the clue is they're gone. They're all gone. Do <laughs> you know what
0: today is? Today is tomorrow. So, if you think you know what that audio clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. NASA isn't selling the ISS people. That people was your little your little yeah. flair there. So I was not aware of this whole controversy. Not or It's not a controversy, but this huge misunderstanding that uh, apparently a lot of people thought that the International Space Station was being sold.
1: And like sold tomorrow. So apparently
0: that's not happening, huh?
1: Right. So basically what happened here was Washington Post published a story that included a quote from Bridenstine saying that nasa would stop directly funding iss and like he basically didn't say anything else and so everybody goes oh well this means that nasa's selling the iss they're doing it tomorrow and you know uh the russians or whatever (laughs) And that's that's not what's happening. You know, my my reaction is like, a yes, ISS being turned into a commercial space station at the end of its life is really really cool, and I, I think that's something that needs to happen. Like, I think we need to not deorbit this historical piece of equipment. I think that it we need to spend some time and care preserving it. I think that's important. But the flip side of that is it's not happening anytime soon. Um, th- this is way way off in the future, and NASA is not selling the ISS tomorrow like everybody seems to think. So what's actually... Actually happening here. This actually sounds like an interesting idea. I don't think it's going to happen the way that we're being told right now that they're planning on doing it, but I think it's a good idea. So basically, uh, most of our listeners should be familiar with NanoRacks. They are a company that uh, buys. Uh, space from NASA and they sell that space to people who want to do science. So they organize trips to space and make sure that cargo is delivered to the ISS and that, that these experiments are set up. And that's a good model or a good mindset to have in your head um, as we start talking about what the discussion is here. So the idea is to take station and sell most of it to commercial partners. So that that would be you know giving or selling parts of station to commercial partners as opposed to just leasing them space like NanoRacks does. And then the idea is that NASA would then turn around. And when they need things done on station, they would pay their commercial partners to train astronauts and to schedule the astronauts' time and to get these things done. And that sounds maybe not very different from the incorrect idea that the public uh, got from this statement. Um, But it it actually is not as as dramatic as it sounds because NASA would still do things like all of the EVAs and they would still do all of the life support and you know a bunch of other maintenance and things. So basically NASA would keep the station up and running and the science would be handled by commercial partners, which I think is, sounds pretty reasonable as we're beginning to transition into a time when NASA is going to have less of a hand on the International Space Station, which I think is inevitable at some point because um, NASA is not a historical society. You know, they do things like they take shuttles and loan them out to museums, right? NASA doesn't keep all these shuttles and put them on display. I don't think that should be their business. And I think that station at some point needs to be defocused and NASA needs to do things like go and explore other worlds. And I think that's totally fine, um, as long as we're not just dumping, you know, ISS into the Pacific Ocean.
0: Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind, the whole concept of selling it to a private entity or a series of them is just, you know, the cost. That's what tells me that it's just not realistic because it right. costs, what, somewhere between 3 and $5 billion per year to keep it operational. So that's 3 to $5 billion. What private... Yeah,
1: I actually have a price breakdown, because what you're saying is exactly what Jim Chilton, the senior vice president for space and launch at Boeing, uh, said. So he was at a hearing of the Senate Space Committee, the the U.S. Senate Space Committee. And I'll I'll read you a quote from Space News, because he's saying exactly what what you're trying to express, and then I'll let you finish expressing that thought. Okay,
0: he'll probably do it better, though.
1: (laughs) So the the quote is, um, Jim Chilton, senior vice president for space and launch at Boeing, said at the hearing that it costs NASA about three. $3.2 billion a year to operate the U.S. segment of the ISS. That includes $1.8 billion in cargo and crew transportation costs, $1.1 billion in operations of the station itself, and $300 million for research. By contrast, commercial activities at the station today only produce around $100 million in revenue. That's a big gap, he said. So there are the actual numbers that you were hinting at.
0: So that's interesting. I didn't know $100 million in revenue. Um that's actually more than I would have thought. <laughs> so there actually is sort of a commercial case that one could make. It's just it just doesn't close the gap. I mean, you're yeah. you're still clearly in the red, but that's a good start. And actually that makes me think that if you had a a new space station, something something like a bigelow module, then you could actually do the kind of research needed to recover the costs. That actually makes commercializing a space station seem more reasonable to me, just not the International Space Station, because clearly uh, $3 billion is, you know, that's a hefty price tag. And you can say that those are very high maintenance fees and it's just not worth it.
1: The thing to note here is that more than half of that $3.2 billion is the $1.8 billion in in transportation. Like that's the most expensive thing. And that price is not exclusive to ISS. And it's also a number that's coming down. But yeah, to pay for $3.2 billion in costs with a hundred million dollars in revenue is is not not super reasonable.
0: You say it's not exclusive to ISS, but it is sort of exclusive to NASA because at least I assume that that's coming from the seats that the Americans have to buy from the Russians, and that's a heavy mm. markup. So I, I guess once you have commercial crew up and going, then that price will come down significantly because I don't see why it would have to cost one point eight billion dollars. So yeah, it will come down a lot.
1: Right, right now, if you want to send somebody to space, this is the kind of price you're going to have to pay. Mm-hmm right yeah. um and so that's what i mean by it's not exclusive to nasa is, is everybody has to pay the russians right now uh or yeah. or the the chinese uh, hopefully that's that's going to be a thing but like you like you said it, it the price is going to come down and it it's going to come down when the us has commercial crew you know, r- really truly up and running. And then the price is going to come down as that commercial crew gets cheaper and cheaper, and there are more and more competitors. So so the biggest line item here is going to come down, but I, I think it's better to focus on the $1.1 billion in operation. So if we do this kind of thing where commercial crew is doing science and NASA is doing operations like that's that's pretty reasonable all you have to pay is for your your ride into orbit and then nasa is kind of a landlord that you know keeps the station running right yeah honestly i kind of feel like it should be the other way around the case, the business case is not there for this, but I would like to see NASA do the science and commercial people provide the the space. Um, but with ISS, that's that's very unlikely to happen. Um, but you know, maybe in other space stations, who knows? I'm always gonna say that I I want NASA to do science and other people to do rides to space and building, you know, spacecraft buses, and I want. NASA to do science but you know we'll we'll see if my idealism actually works out in the real world. It certainly
0: might because that is that is one of the best roles of a government type mm-hmm. of an agency. I'm a bit hazy on whether NASA is actually a government agency because I've heard that it's not or that they are a civilian agency but they do work for the government, right? Whatever. They
1: get money from Congress. They're a government agency,
0: (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. For all intents and purposes, they are. So one of the best roles of a government agency is actually to do research because that's something that's very hard to make a commercial case for. So you just go ahead and pass it on to the government. And yeah, I think that that would be the best thing that NASA could do is just to do science. And then, yeah, you hand everything else over to the private sector because they can make that happen at a much lower cost.
1: So the the Senate in in the, uh, the space committee basically were like, Hey, this is a bad idea, guys. Let's not do this. So, so what Chilton and Bridenstine are saying here is that they want to do this by 2025. And one of the big objections that the space committee had was that, Hey, guess what? We're good through 2028. So why would you start this any earlier? And, uh, one of the, one of the experts I what do they call them? but one of one of the people there um was the i think the CEO from Axiom Space who was like hey why don't we just keep doing what we're doing which the idea is to put commercial modules on ISS first and to to begin this transition by Letting commercial partners have their own modules that they can run instead of giving them free reign over over the whole station. And I think that's really the way to go, right? This is the way that we've been thinking about this for a while. This is kind of the way that, that seems to work for a lot of people um, is, is commercial modules. Um, and, and I think that's really exciting for a number of ways, uh, especially because we can start really small, right? NanoRacks is going to have their own airlock. And like, that's the first step to having an actual module and Bigelow, you know, has their own module, even though they're not doing science in it, <laughs> not more than bare bone science. I, I think that's the way to go. Um, and then finally, the the last thought I have here is that russia and you know ESA to a lesser extent are going to have a lot of sway over any operational changes even to the u.s orbital segment if nasa wants to make big changes they really need their partners to be okay with it and, and that's that's kind of why at the top of the show i said Fuck russia because if you read this wrong it, it sounds a heck of a lot like nasa's going you know what we own the entire station and let's forget about you know that little caboose at the back of the station when in in reality the russian orbital segment is an integral part of the space station. You can't have ISS without the Russian orbital segment.
0: Right. Yeah. There are pre-existing international agreements. So you can't just say, hey, we're going to turn this over to the civilians and good luck with that. I don't think Russia would be very happy about that or Europe or anywhere else. Yeah.
1: So Sam in the chat says, yeah, the the Russian orbital segment is legally distinct. So the U.S. can't hand it over. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly that's exactly what we're thinking.
0: Moving on to our next topic, uh, not a big one, but kind of a big one. Uh SpaceX is planning a major expansion at Kennedy Space Center. So I think this is really cool just because I've had the opportunity to drive down there a number of times and I it's just something that I might get to see. Yeah, this is I guess not too surprising right now at Kennedy Space Center. I don't know how many first stages they can house once they bring them back, but it is it is beginning to be an issue, right? I think we've seen, I mean, I know that you can hold three in the hangar, but I think I've seen more than that. But I think three is actually supposed to be the maximum number. And one question I've had is they're bringing back all these first stages and where are they going to put them? Plus, of course, they're going to be, you know, like ramping up launch operations going forward. And obviously that's just going to require a whole lot more presence on site. So to that end, they're, they kind of have this this little bit of land cut out. And I won't bother describing exactly where it is, but it's not far from the uh, KSC visitor complex. So if you've ever been there, it's just north of there, although you do have to go beyond the gate. So you have to get a pass and then you just drive right by it. So that's where SpaceX is actually planning on building this thing. First thing it's going to have is a launch and landing control center, which is actually a tower, which really looks futuristic. It's very Jetsons or it kind of looks like, it kind of looks like an Apple little earbud, you know, if you're <laughs> ever looking at earbud. it kind of looks like that sticking out of the ground. It's about 300 feet tall. So it's a really cool looking launch tower, like very sleek, very modern looking. And there's also going to be a 133,000 square foot hangar. So I guess that's where they're going to put all their First and possibly second stages, now that they're going to be bringing those back, apparently, um, as well as a rocket garden. I'm assuming by rocket garden, they mean that's just where they put spent stages that they don't want to reuse again. Is that what that is? Because I've never actually heard that, but that's my guess.
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's a rocket garden at Kennedy already, which is like a, a museum. So, yeah, I'm assuming it's going to be historical historical spacecraft that they want to put on display. Connor's got a good point in the chat. Connor says that uh, they can grow rockets in their rocket garden using this used water tower of a landing control center tower (laughs) because it really does look like a water tower.
0: So, yeah, a cool-looking water tower-type launch and control center. This giant hangar that will allow for the storage and refurbishing of the fairings and the cores. And they estimate that they could have up to Uh, 63 core landings per year. And so I guess right now they're just taking them back to either their Texas facility or shipping them somewhere else because I don't know where they're keeping them.
1: I think at this point they might be stacking them and getting more room indoors. But yeah, they really they really are, are short on space at the moment.
0: It's a good problem to have is that they're not losing their first stages, but they have to put them somewhere. So I guess it's sort of like maintaining a fleet of airplanes. Uh, you have to have somewhere to keep them. So yeah, it's a pretty cool idea. And the environmental assessment looks good. Uh, they haven't had any problems. I mean, there's no you know endangered species and it's not going to require any kind of use of water or anything else that might be detrimental to the wetlands. In addition to that, they also plan on refurbishing Area 59. Uh, and that's a kind ca- Naval Air Force Station, and that will be used for Dragon processing. Uh, so they're going to be doing their Dragon processing not at that site, but you know, just a little bit down the road uh at the air force station. So, uh, yeah, a lot of expanding at the Cape, which I think is really awesome because I want to go on a tour if such things are allowed. Um that would be so cool.
1: Yeah, dragon processing plant
0: because right now they just have a little dinky facility somewhere at Cape Canaveral and I have driven past it. It doesn't look like much. It's just a couple of office buildings. I mean, or at least that's what it looks like. So, nothing much to look at, but uh this looks really cool. Let's do some short and sweet. We got three of them this week. And what's our first one, Ben?
1: All right. So Juno gets three more years. NASA has approved a mission extension of three years to the Juno spacecraft, currently in its unplanned highly elliptical orbit around Jupiter. The off-nominal orbit was due to an issue with Juno's main engine, but otherwise, all instruments aboard are functioning perfectly. NASA has thus decided to extend mission operations for Juno through July of 2021 with continued data analysis through 2022. Had the mission not been extended, Juno would have only completed 12 science orbits with its mission being terminated in July of this year. So cool. I'm so happy about this. Yep, they got their
0: extension. And next up, Orbital ATK purchased by Northrop Grumman. On Wednesday, Orbital ATK became Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems. Answering what's likely the first question on everyone's mind, Cygnus is still going to ISS. This purchase has some conditions, though, because there are only four suppliers of missiles to the U.S. military, and because Northrop Grumman is one of them. Restrictions have been placed on how Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems decides to sell their solid rockets, including how they handle trade secrets and classified information that they gather on their competitors while providing them with solid rockets. So, yeah, a little bit of a conflict of interest there maybe
1: yeah a little bit yep all right finally uh opportunity takes a science break due to a dust storm so a dust storm which was first detected by mro on june 1st near endeavor crater has grown to more than 18 million square kilometers within five days the atmospheric capacity above oppi had dropped by 78 percent As a result, JPL has announced that they have put their science operations on hold until the storm passes. It's dust storm season in this part of Mars, so this isn't unexpected, but this is one of the worst dust storms opportunity has seen since the 2007 dust storm that covered the whole planet and nearly killed the rover. So a bit of a Mark Watney moment. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Okay, stand by We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns, and this week we have a really cool correction slash, I guess, uh, elaboration from Ben Howard about Virgin Galactic, because uh, I think we were a little bit confused on uh, this whole going to space thing, but obviously VSS Unity will not be going to space because it can't make it to 100 kilometers, but maybe depending on your definition of space and changes that they might be making in the future. Maybe uh, maybe they will be. To quote, and I think his name is Mike Moses, who is the president of Virgin Galactic, what he says is, uh, we didn't finish the test program with Enterprise, so now Unity is our test vehicle. We've added a lot more structure, a lot more instrumentation because you don't know the margins. You don't know the actual environment you're going to fly in. We had to be on the conservative side. We'll be able to pull that weight back out after we've done it, but initially we won't be going all the way to the Carmen line, we're going to aim for the 80-kilometer U.S. definition of space. And that's kind of what threw me, because I didn't know that there mm-hmm. was a U.S. definition of space. The 80-kilometer boundary, that is the U.S. Air Force boundary of space.
1: Right. right. That's when they hand out the astronaut wings.
0: But actually, as far as the United States government, I guess, is concerned, there actually is no official boundary. But according to the Air Force, it's supposed to be uh, the 80-kilometer mark.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this is what I was saying last week. It's like, it depends on how you define space, and everybody defines it differently. And then everybody in the chat yelled, Carmen line and i'm like oh, okay fine um but yeah the the interesting thing here is that they said initially we won't be going all the way to the carmen line so it sounds like maybe when they build their second vehicle they're going mm. to be willing to push it even farther.
0: They might even just use this vehicle and they might just be pulling out some of the hardware that they don't need because, you know, they're just mm. trying to be overly cautious. Yeah. So I guess for paying customers, they will still be going to the official as, or at least as I consider it, the official boundary space, which is 100 kilometers. <laughs> right. Sorry, Air Force. Um, and then
1: we have a second email. This comes from Bart Willems, um, who chimes in rarely, but when he does, it's it's pretty interesting. So he had some comments on the leapish in. He's got two comments. First, um, and this is some interesting historical background that I, I didn't know. Um, he says the Fokkers had wrecked havoc among the allied air forces in world war one. Hence the treaty of Versailles severely limited what was and was not possible with am- airplanes in Germany. As a result, gliding was exceptionally popular. I didn't, I didn't realize that they were, um, so limited on what they could fly. So that's really interesting that, that that's why they worked with, um, with gliders for the, uh, the leap Liebeschint- or for, you know, rocket propelled airplanes. Second, um, yeah, he says that he's shocked that I mentioned, the entra means duck and then he he goes one step further which i never i never knew this i never made this connection but canard means duck in French, which is so cool. So that's why they named it. The, it, the, the vehicle was named after the canards, which is so cool. I think that's I think it's a really good little snippet.
0: Let's go ahead and move on to upcoming spaceflight events. I don't think we have any launches, huh? Just uh, one little thing and that's it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, little thing. It's still putting, you know, human lives at risk. But sure. June 14th, uh, which is Thursday, spacewalk, uh, U.S. Spacewalk 51 uh, starts And this is going to be pretty cool. So this is a six and a half hour spacewalk. Uh, the coverage begins at 630 a.m. on Thursday at Eastern time. And the spacewalk is scheduled to begin around 8 a.m. Eastern time. That's going to be pretty good. That's it. Those is your upcoming spaceflight event.
0: Good grammar. And with that said, we'll go ahead and do with the show. Cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at RonaldJinkies.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut.
1: If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you
0: enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Orbital Podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live.
1: You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast.
0: You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com
1: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts and hoodies. So that's it. We will see you in one week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye everybody.